In the middle of the fourth century, a mother knelt at the edge of a harbor in Algeria praying, God, don't let him go. Her son had set his sights on distant Italy, where he was planning to go and to live a life of self-centered debauchery. Don't let him go, she prayed. But he went. And by the year 387, he was professor of rhetoric at the University of Milan, living the life of wine, women, and song that he had gone there to live. But at the same time, he was going through a real spiritual struggle, trying to leave that kind of a life, and yet not having the moral fiber and ability to be able to do so. One day he was sitting in tears in the garden of a friend, when he heard the voice of a child from the house next door crying out, Take up and read, take up and read. Well, nearby was a scroll. He went over, he opened it up. It was Paul's letter to the Romans. His eyes fell upon a section from Romans 13. No orgies or drunkenness or immorality or indecency. No fighting or jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and stop paying attention to your sinful nature and satisfying its desires. The text gripped him. Later he wrote, Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. What an overwhelming impact this moment would later have on the church, down through the centuries, through the great mind of this young man, Augustine, later to become bishop, and later to be known as St. Augustine. This morning, since our soap readings, which I hope you're following, since for the next two weeks they're going to be bringing us through all of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter by chapter, I thought we would take a brief break from the, the Kingdom of God series and get a bit of an overview of this book, which many consider to be the most important book in the whole Bible. You see, no other book has had such a profound impact upon the life of the church and the spiritual and theological shaping and formation of many of its leaders. For instance, a little over a thousand years later, a young Martin Luther was struggling as professor of sacred theology at the University of Wittenberg, struggling not because of his teaching load, but because of his fear of a righteous God. God is righteous, and I am not, Luther thought, and yet this God demands that I be righteous. For instance, as we just heard in the Gospel lesson, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Luther was driven to terror and despair, in 1515, he was given the assignment to teach Paul's letter to the Romans. And this exposed him to Paul's central teaching on justification, being made right with God. One thing stood in the way for him, though, and that was this phrase, the righteousness of God. 
As long as he took this to mean simply that God was righteous and punished those who were unrighteous, he couldn't move forward. He actually found himself angry at God for making such an impossible demand. But then he made a discovery, a rediscovery, actually, and one that changed his life as much as it had changed the life of Augustine. Luther wrote, Night and day I pondered the book of Romans, letter Romans, until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. In other words, in Romans, the righteousness of God is not that righteousness which he demands of us, but rather the righteousness which God gives. The righteousness of Christ, which indeed exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and with which he covers us, and which comes to us through faith in Christ. Luther continued, Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage from Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. And Luther was on his way, launching the Reformation two years later. Another two centuries passed, passed, and we come to an unbelieving John Wesley of the events that took place on May 24, 1738, he later wrote, In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where someone was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. From this beginning came the Methodist Church, as well as the great evangelical revival of the 18th century. And then once again, Almost 200 years passed. It was August of 1918, an age of theological liberalism and uncertainty, when many pastors and lay people were starting to wander from faith. A parish pastor in Switzerland by the name of Karl Barth became disillusioned as he saw his former seminary professors caving in to German nationalism. He dug deeply into Romans and ended up publishing a commentary, his Romer brief. Dr. Carl Adams later noted how this first edition of Barth's powerful work fell, as it were, like a bombshell on the theologian's playground. It soon led to the greatest turnabout, theological turnabout, of our age, drawing the church back to centering on the resurrection of Christ. This is how important Paul's letter to the Romans is. This is the impact it has had and continues to have upon the lives 
of God's people. As William Barclay has put it, if scripture is a ring, then Romans is the jewel. Again and again, Paul's letter to the Romans has changed lives. May it change our lives as we go through it in the next two weeks. So why did Paul write this powerful letter? First of all, the burning issue of Paul's career as a missionary was, is the gospel meant just for Jews, or is it meant for non-Jews also, for Gentiles, for people like us? And he got a clear answer to that on the road to Damascus, where God made it clear it is for non-Jews as well, for Gentiles. That came as a surprise to many early Christians, who were, after all, all Jews. You may remember our sermon series on Acts a couple of years ago, how this was a major struggle for the early church. Recognizing that Gentile lives matter did not come easily. But God had sent Paul as missionary to the Gentiles. And so this theme is dealt with right at the beginning of Romans. But Paul had a second concern as well. He was always scanning the distant horizon, looking for where would God send me next to bring the gospel. This was a time in history when Spain had become a center of intellectual ferment for the Mediterranean. So Paul had set his eyes on getting to Spain. But that was quite some distance away. How to get there? He would need financial assistance and support in order to make that happen. And so he writes to this major congregation in Rome, which he had neither founded nor even visited. It's unique for Paul's letters. In order to seek their support, for this outreach. Thus, he lays out just what he believes in detail in order to justify and gain their support, to which we can only say, thanks be to God, because that has led to this magnificent letter, this magnum opus of Paul, which has guided the church and changed lives ever since. So those are the two reasons Paul wrote this letter to Rome. And what I'd like to do now is briefly break the letter down into four chunks to give you some hooks to to hang things on, as it were, as you go through it in the next couple of weeks. The back of the bulletin gives you an outline and a, a little space to take a few notes. I'll be skipping chapter 16, since that is essentially a letter of introduction for a woman named Phoebe, warnings about dissensions, And then just a lot of greetings, including a greeting from Tertius, who was Paul's secretary at this point, and who actually was taking dictation and uh, greets him as the writer of this letter, because he was physically putting words to a paper at that point. So let's start with what is often called Paul's theme verse, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Greek, in this case, meaning Gentile, of course, folks like us. Paul said he was not ashamed or fearful. 
Paul, Paul spent his life sharing what God had done for him in Christ with those around him, even when it cost him persecutions and beatings and imprisonment and eventually even his own life. So here comes chunk number one, chapters one through five, the basics of the gospel or gospel 101. Here Paul lays out our grievous situation and God's gracious response. Our grievous situation and God's gracious response. What about Jew and Gentile? Do Jews have an advantage? Paul says yes and no. Yes, they are the people to whom God gave his law through Moses on Mount Sinai. But no, because they stand condemned by that very law which they have failed to keep. What about us as Gentiles? Well, we haven't been given the law in the same way that the Jews have. But that being said, we have God's law written on our hearts. We have conscience. We have even our own standards, which we fail to meet. So we all are in the same situation. We're all in a a hot mess, whether Jew or Gentile. And all of this leads to a summary Bible verse that many of us may have learned in Sunday school. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 But thanks be to God, that is not the end of the story. The very next verse leads into God's gracious response. It is, he tells us that we are justified, that is, made right with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, God in his mercy has taken all of this upon himself, entering the world in the person of Jesus, and died and risen again to bear this burden of sin on our behalf. And thus we read, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. And Paul then describes Christ as a new Adam. And just as sin entered the world through Adam, God's graciousness and forgiveness enter the world through Jesus Christ. And all by the grace of God. The second big chunk is chapters 6 through 8. The life that then follows, part 1. The life that follows, part 1. How do I respond to this good news? What kind of life should we lead because of what God has done for us? Paul gives us his answer in two chunks, this being the first one which is why I call it part one. He begins with a a wrong-headed response. There were those who, whether because of misunderstanding or whether seeking to mock Paul, were saying, oh, well, this grace is wonderful stuff. If I sin, I get God's grace. So let's sin all the more that we can get more of this good stuff. You can find Paul's rather aghast response to that one in Romans chapter 6. But then in Romans 7, we see another side of the life that follows. It's not a bed of roses. We're not so changed that we simply simply stop sinning or no longer suffer from temptation. Paul talks about his struggle, his almost 
hopeless struggle as he seeks to be a follower of Jesus. Ever been there? I'm guessing we probably all have. That's where chapter 8 then comes in. But we're not going there quite yet. I want to hold that gem back until the end. So we'll be returning to chapter 8. At this point, Paul takes a bit of a detour in chapters 9 through 11. The question of the Jews. This is our third chunk. Romans chapters 9 through 11. Something has been bothering Paul, and it's been a deep source of anguish for him. Although he has been sent as apostle to the Gentiles, he himself is a Jew. And he has great anguish over the fact that most of his own people, the Jews, have rejected Jesus as crucified and risen Messiah. What is to become of them? Long story short, Paul sees their rejection as being just temporary to allow for and even lead to the bringing in of the Gentiles like branches being grafted into a tree. Eventually, he expects all Israel to be saved. After all, it is God's will that all people be saved, as we read in 1 Timothy. In Romans 9 through 11, you can follow Paul's very hopeful thinking on this matter with regard to his own people. The fourth and last major chunk is Romans 12 through 15. Here Paul continues where he left off before considering the fate of the Jews. And so I call this section The Life That Follows, Part 2. And it begins with the great therefore. Paul does this again and again. He starts with what God has done for us in Christ in granting us forgiveness of sins, in making us children of God, and all this that God has done for us, and then, therefore, therefore, therefore live your lives in ways that show you are a child of God. Live your lives as a thank you to God. He doesn't say, be good, and then God will love you. That's legalism. And religion is full of legalism. No, rather he says, God already loves you. Jesus died for you. Now therefore, therefore live in this way. He begins, chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Or as the old J.B. Phillips paraphrase puts it, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You are a forgiven child of God. By God's grace, through faith in Christ. So if you've got it, flaunt it. Let the world not only see who you are, but whose you are. In chapter 14, Paul then tells how to respond to those who do get all wrapped up in all of the do's and don'ts of legalism. You've got to do this, you can't do that, and so on. 
Paul describes them as folks who are weak in faith. But he says to go gently with them so as not to be a stumbling block in their lives. Finally, at the end of chapter 15, we get to Paul's reason for asking for assistance from the Romans for his trip, hopefully, on the way to Spain to bring the gospel all the way to the other side of the Mediterranean. And so ends our fourth chunk. Now, I said earlier that I wanted to leave chapter 8 to the very end. That's because chapter 8 is, in some ways, the heart of the watermelon. It's been said that if Romans is the crown of the Bible, then chapter 8 is the glittering jewel in the center of that crown. Chapter 8 begins with another of Paul's therefore statements, using the word law in two ways. Law as principle, like the law of gravity, but law also as that which, Paul, which, which God delivered to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. He begins, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, life in Christ frees me from the burden of Old Testament law. He then goes on to describe the life of one living in Christ and being led by God's Holy Spirit. He knows that this may well involve suffering. And that indeed the whole creation has been suffering since the fall, but will in the end be redeemed along with the rest of us. Here we have the beginning of an answer to the persistent question, why do bad things happen to good people? Read this part of chapter 8 carefully. Romans 8 also shares how the Holy Spirit helps us when we just don't know how to pray. And it's in Romans that we find the well-known Romans 8.28. We know that in all things God works for good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But it's at the very end of Romans 8 that Paul soars to the heights. Having just gone through all that God has done for us in Christ, through cross and resurrection, through forgiveness of sins, and all this by God's grace alone, Paul ends the chapter with a series of bold questions and challenges. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to all this, can even a group of Lutherans say amen? Amen. 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 And now we continue with a singing about God of Abraham. In some ways, this is where Paul starts way back in Genesis with Abraham in chapter 15, where it says, Abraham believed God, and God counted it as righteousness. And that was the launch point for Paul, who then becomes the launch point for so many others. <laughs> 